for the rest of us, if you turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. And let's read the first six verses. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them, and those who are ill-treated, since you yourselves are also in the body. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have, for he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we love you so much, and we are thankful that we have this honor and this privilege to gather as your people in this place, to lift up your name, to declare your greatness, to bow before you with the concerns of our heart and to receive from you the forgiveness of sins. And thank you that you have chosen to meet with us here and to not be silent, but you speak to us through your word. Your word is it's sung, your word is it's read, and your word now is it will be preached. And we plead with you, O God, send your spirit. And apply the truth of your word to each of our hearts as each one individually needs it. Give us strength, O God, to face the day. Give us faith to follow after you. Give us encouragement and hope. Give us conviction and the strength to follow. We pray for our kids and children's worship, O God, as they bow their heads and say prayers. Lord, set their hearts free that they may worship you fully. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you probably remember, uh, last week I began the message, uh, and I say that tongue-in-cheek, um, began the message by discussing the diversity within the administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament, right? You were just saying that to your spouse just a few minutes ago and wondering, well, what will we do this week? Maybe he'll turn his attention on the unity within the covenant of grace between the old and new administrations. And you would be right. It's exactly what I want us to take a, a little bit of time to do. We, we talked about just how, how uh, the, the, the old and the new differed from one another. And, and we, we looked at what trouble that brings in a person's life and how hard that would have been to see this, this change going on in, in uh, all of your, your religion, if you will, that it's just being turned upside down and, and what does all that mean? But in reality, what we find is the substance of faith in the old and the new remains the same. And the author of Hebrews begins to point that out to his authors. Um, and, and, is, and, and we'll look at that just a, a little bit more. But I want to read from our, uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, there's a chapter on the covenants. And in paragraph 5 and paragraph 6, we, we learn a little bit about these covenants and their, their unity and their diversity. The covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture. That's not what I'm looking at. The covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews 
all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit to instruct and to build up the elect in the faith and the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Now, there's a lot there. You can sit and, and, and break that all down. In paragraph seven, paragraph six, rather, they begin to turn the attention on, well, what about this new administration? Under the gospel, that is the new administration of the covenant of grace, when Christ the substance was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper which though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it is held forth in more fullness, evidence and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. Here's the part I really want us to, to understand. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Now, the author of the Hebrews understands this, and he wants to remind them that although the administration of this covenant is changing, that we're moving away from, from the, the Old Testament rituals, we're moving away from, from the sacrifice, we're moving away from the priesthood, we're moving away from the law's outward co uh, commandment, yet the substance remains the same. That is unchanged, what is central to their religious sense. You see, for the, for the Jews, there was this, this sense of piety that was found in, in the first century. And it's, it's influenced greatly by the Pharisees. And we think about, we know about the Pharisees, right? And they believed that your righteousness was found by your obedience to the law. And they were very strict on the law. They had, they had all these extra laws that they'd added just to make sure that you don't possibly break the real law. Right? So they've got all of these commandments about uh, what you can do uh, on the Sabbath. They've got all, all, all of these regulations. Well, think about how that would influence you. If for a few hundred years, this group with this mindset has been in charge of your church and how that's going to affect your own sense of, of piety and what that would mean of your own sense of, of religion and, and how that would uh, uh, work. You see, the, the rituals begin to overshadow the substance. And can't you just see some of them asking, so is it all gone now? They're understanding what the, the, the author of Hebrews is writing, and they're saying, well, is my religion gone then? Is this something totally separate, totally new? And that's why he speaks to them, particularly about the commands that he gives here as he's giving them instruction to show them, no, 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 no. Your personal piety, which is the, the substance of your faith, remains the same. It's still there. And so he's telling them to continue in their personal piety. That hasn't changed. He reminds them and he reminds us to continue in our personal piety. Let's look at the two elements of the personal piety that he begins to deal with. And the first is that you, you, would, you, you still love. It'd be really easy to think, Oh, so I guess love is gone, right? As the Jews would think that. So, so what does this mean? And he finds love as, as a central part of our piety. Verses 1 through 3. Let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourself also are in the body. 
This idea that love is central, I want us to, to keep in mind and recognize that this is what was understood even by the Jews in Jesus' day. We may think, oh, they, they thought all their righteousness was just found in, in all their various uh, obediences to the laws, and, and that's, not, that's not exactly accurate. For you remember the situation where Jesus is talking with the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, and verse 16, we read, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good things shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There's only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Okay? So he says, There, there you go. Keep the commandments. Well, um, then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not uh, commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so that's the one that I want you to know. Notice that as he's describing the commandments, and that's not love your neighbor as yourself isn't actually one of the Ten Commandments, right? It's a summary of the second table. The first table is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. But he summarizes it. And notice that, that the, the uh, rich young ruler didn't look at him and say, well, that's not in the Ten Commandments. Instead, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? This young man, who was a pious young man, understood that loving was a central part, a key part of his faith and of his piety. The Jews knew that love was a central command. They were aware of that. Now, the author of Hebrews begins to talk about love in three different areas. And I want to show from the Old Testament how each of those was known to be a command to the Jews. The first, he says, to love the brethren, right? To love the brethren. What well, we see in Psalm 133, the great blessing that God declares, behold, how good and pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. As the Old Testament taught that loving the brethren was something that we all needed to do. And the second part is he, he says to remember those who are in prison, that is to, to love the oppressed. And we see in Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 34 that the Jews were told, the stranger who resides with you, I'm sorry, he talks about the strangers first. This is, I really should look at my notes. The second verse tells us that we are to uh, show hospitality to strangers, which is literally to love the strangers. And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34, it says, The stranger who resides with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So again, this command to the Jews in the Old Testament was given to them, to all of Israel, that they needed to love the stranger. And the third is to love the oppressed, those who are in prison, and to remember them as uh, recognizing that they themselves are still in the body. And for this, we remember Isaiah chapter 58, as Isaiah is talking to uh, the people of God and he's explaining to them uh, the, the fasting that God wants and the actual uh, spiritual disciplines that they are to have. And he writes about it in, in chapter 58 and he explains to them precisely what type of fast God wants in verse 6. Is this not the fast which I have chosen? To loosen the bonds of wickedness? To undo the bands of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? 
So we see that even in Isaiah, they are told to care for the oppressed. So each of these three areas, to, to love the brethren, to love the stranger, and to care for the oppressed, are found in the Old Testament. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that hasn't changed. That continues in the new administration of the covenant of grace. This central part of your piety continues. It doesn't only show us who we're to love. I believe that it also shows us how. So let's consider that together. How do we love? And I think the first way that we're to love is we, our love must last. Looking at verse 1 again. Let love of the brethren continue. Love of the brethren. Here's uh, Pennsylvania, one of our favorite verses, right? Because love of the brethren is Philadelphia, right? Which most of the world thinks is the capital of Pennsylvania. We happen to know otherwise, but uh, it's, it's, it means brotherly love. That's all it means. He's just saying, let brotherly love continue. Now think about that for a moment. That's a lifelong love, isn't it? You get to choose friends, you don't get to choose your family. You are in that family, and you are always in that family. You always have that relationship that is there. It's a lifelong commitment that he's talking about in this place. It's one that, that doesn't just go away, but we're honest, it's also a hard one, isn't it? It's a bumpy relationship. It isn't always super smooth. It's hard. There are obstacles that get in the way of a lifelong love for our brethren. But that's what he's drawing our attention to, to have a love that is not going to stop. How do we do that? There's just two principles I want us to, to see from this, to, to think about. How do, I, how do I have a love that lasts? How do I love the brethren? I think first I've got to be ready to forgive. Got to be ready to forgive. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Wow. Doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. I'm not even going to allow myself to be offended, but if I am offended, I'm going to choose forgiveness. I'm going to go to that place to where I'm going to say, I don't have to get justice. I can let it go because of Christ. Ephesians 4.32 tells us to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. The, the Greek word kathos is translated just as, and it means in the same way. I'm to forgive my brother the same way that Christ has forgiven me. I don't have to require that they grovel, right? Did I have to grovel to be forgiven by God? Did I have to make amends with everything about it to be forgiven by God? Did I have to do everything right to be forgiven by God? Did I even have to confess it before I'm forgiven by God? I hope not because I think I miss most of my sins. And so I can never confess them. But he demonstrated his love for me in this, that while, Christ, while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. He paid the full price before I even had come into existence, let alone before I had sinned them, let alone before I had confessed them. I'm convinced to some extent that when we walk into heaven and he wipes away the tears, I think the bulk of those tears are going to become, because I'm now aware 
of how bad my sins were and of the sins that I had missed. And he's going to wipe them away, but the hand with which he's going to wipe it is the hand that has the scar so that I see he paid that price and therefore the tears are forever dried because he forgives. And that's the standard by which I am to forgive in my love. That's my first step. The second step is don't give offense. Back to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. It says, does not act unbecomingly. And that's not the same as doesn't act goofy, right? Sometimes, uh, you know, our, 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 our more mature of us will say, oh, well, that's just inappropriate, right? And, and it's not really necessarily wrong. It's just goofy, right? But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about we don't give offense. Love works hard that it's not going to give an offense to another individual. It's not going to try to hurt them. It's not going to try to cause them to stumble. But it's going to act in a way that we could call unbecoming, or that it's always acting becomingly. I guess the third element that I would see is, first of all, I've got to be ready to forgive. Secondly, I need to be sure I'm not giving offense. And third is, I need to choose to see the good. Isn't it easier to see the bad in other people? Isn't it easier to see where they're, they're not like us? What if I begin to train myself to where I always want to see the good? Always want to have art that delights in that other person. To see the good that is there. That's, that's the, the call, I think. And I think the, it takes effort. takes training. takes repentance, because we won't always do it. But if we begin to build this in our lives, if I begin to build that I'm going to be ready to forgive, I'm going to seek to not give an, uh, an offense, and thirdly, I'm going to look for the good in the other. Am I not going to be loving my brethren? That's the first, is I'm going to have a love that'll last. The second is I need a love that's risky. That's risky. He says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. There may be some within our congregation that have been waiting for me to get to this verse the whole time I've been going through Hebrews because you're saying, yeah, this one's awesome. This is the angel verse. This is great where we have dinner with an angel. Gabriel stops by, and, and it is that verse. And, and we'll, we'll maybe touch on that. But trying to understand what it's saying, it says that hospitality to strangers, and I told you, this is, this is a word. Uh, we said love, loving the brethren is Philadelphia, and this is uh, philizenia. Xenia, xenos. You've heard of xenophobia. It's a fear of the stranger. This is love of the stranger. That's what hospitality is. Think about it for just a moment, what that would, what that would mean to love the stranger. We see it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, as uh, Paul is writing to a, a mixed audience, but in particular to uh, um, Gentiles. And he says in verse 12, he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's how they were described. It's those who were strangers, those who were outside, those who were other, those who weren't a part of us and our group. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament uh, describes the word in, in this way. It says that strangeness produces mutual tension between natives and foreigners, but hospitality overcomes the tension and makes of the alien a friend. Historically, foreigners are primarily enemies or outlaws who should be killed. 
It is then found, however, that hospitality is a better way to deal with strangers, and they thus become the wards of law and religion. What a great reminder. Um, I asked the, my uh, Sunday school class this morning what they think of when I say stranger, and uh, it, it, it took a little while, but then the, you, you all probably are thinking of it, right? There's a word that usually follows stranger, and it is danger, and, and that just tells you what we think of strangers, naturally. But you see what God is saying. Love the stranger. I don't have to be afraid of the stranger. I can love the stranger. My love then is going to be risky. I've got to drop my guard. I think one of the most beautiful illustrations of this is the relationship between Ananias and Saul. Remember Saul was breathing out threats against God's people and he was going around and he was uh, murdering Christians, those who were of the way, and he had papers that he'd go along uh, heading up to Damascus and anybody he found he's going to throw into prison and they were going to be, which gets us into the next verse, but anyway, and then, and then he's struck blind and then God comes to Ananias and says, Ananias, I want you to go to Saul and I want you to, to, to speak to him the gospel. And Ananias is, at first is like, whoa, 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 Lord, maybe you weren't aware <laughs> that he's, he's about killing folks like me, right? Are you sure this is what you want? He says, yes, he's a chosen vessel of mine, and he must learn how much he must suffer for the way. And so Ananias does. And you know what Ananias does? It's so magnificent, and it impacted Paul, Saul. Because later when Saul told the story, he added this part too, which could be just overlooked easily. Ananias walked in and he said, Brother Saul. And when Saul tells the story, Paul tells the story later on, he says, and he said to me, Brother Saul. What I know from that is that had an impact. If you've read uh, the, the book Les Miserables or seen the, the musical, you know there's that moment when Jean Valjean is impacted because the bishop, in speaking to him, calls him brother. And he says, this day I have bought your soul for God, my brother. And he says, he called me brother. And in the book, he's got this long section in which Jean Valjean is just wrestling with this reality and what that would then mean. He's brother with a bishop. Are you kidding me? How can that be? I'm a criminal. I spent all this time in jail, and now I'm out, and I've been broken, broken the uh, laws even still. And he calls me brother. He says, I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to love you. You who are a stranger, I'm going to bring in. Our love must also be risky. But here's the cool part. You just may be blessed. You might entertain angels unaware. What does that mean? A couple ways. We can, we can think of instances, right? Abraham saw three guys. said, come on in, let me feed you. They were angels. One of them, we believe, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Did he know that? I don't know if there's anything that indicates that he knew that. But he showed them hospitality and he was able to entertain angels. Is it possible? Is it possible that as we choose a risky love, even of strangers, that one of those times we may actually find an angelic being has been in our presence? It can. 
It can, and I don't want to sound all mystical, and, and, but I mean, we believe that this, they're, they're, they're spirit beings and we're physical beings and we interact. Isn't that by definition mystical? And, and isn't it what the Word of God indicates to us? There's another way. The word angel is actually just a transliteration. That is, you, you give an English equivalent letter to each of the Greek letters, and, and that becomes a word. So angel is just angelos, um, and they put the OS to show what its, its form is in their language, which is just a nominative masculine singular, because you wanted to know that. Um, but its angel is the root of it. It, it, and you know what it translating means? It means messenger. Maybe by showing love to a stranger, we might entertain a messenger for God without realizing it. Maybe this individual will come into our life and will show us something of the love of God that we didn't know before. Is that possible? You see, that's precisely what he's saying. Now, can it be an angelic being? Yep. Could it also be a messenger of God? Yes. Either way, God promises that we may indeed find a blessing as, we, as our love is risky. And finally, with our love, we need to seek no return. We need to, our love must last, it must be risky, and it must seek no return. Look at verse 3. Remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who are ill-treated since you yourselves are also in the body. Verse 3 really talks about the oppressed, doesn't it? That is to say, these are people who have nothing to give in return. What can a prisoner give to you when you go visit them? Right? They got nothing. There's nothing that they can do for you. And so this is a love that doesn't seek to get anything back. It's the love that's mentioned by Jesus in, in Matthew chapter 25. Verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Jesus has told these people right before he explains it, he says, enter into your rest. This magnificent place. Why? Because they loved without seeking anything in return. It's a gift that's given. It's easy to love people who love us, right? Matter of fact, I think most of the time, that's what most attracts us to people that we're attracted to, is that they like us. I because to me, that shows they have great intelligence. Why are you laughing? <laughs> hmm, I may have to rethink that. Matthew 5, Jesus talks about this. He says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? How does that set you apart? How, everybody does that. That's the easiest thing in the world, to love those who love us. But instead, I need to be able to love from the place where I'm satisfied fully with Christ's love for me so that I don't have to get anything in return. I just have extra. I think it's what David meant when he said in Psalm 23, verse 5, 
You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. You've provided everything that I need. You've given me a table. You've given me honor. You've anointed me. My cup overflows so I can now love others because I have all that I need that Christ has provided me. And to love from such a full cup is the invitation that he gives. We need to still love. We get to still love. In the new covenant, we still love. But we also need to remain faithful, verses 4 through 6. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? As I read this, I think of two passages of scripture that I think uh, illustrate uh, the point well for us. The first is Micah 6.8 that many people who lived through Christianity in the 80s and 90s know because we sang it so often, right? And that is that he says, uh, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. This great summary of Christian piety is laid out for us in this verse and shows us precisely what God is looking for. Jesus alludes to it in Matthew chapter 23 as he speaks to the scribes and Pharisees, the hypocrites. He says in verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. He doesn't say, forget about the tithing. He says, but what's weightier? The weightier provisions are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He's alluding to Micah 6.8. What is good but to do justice, to love mercy, and then to walk humbly or faithfully before your God. That's what we're called upon to do. And faithfulness, then, is a weightier provision of the law. It is a part that the Jews understood was a central part of their piety. And the author here is saying, and that hasn't gone away, you still remain faithful. I want to look at three areas of faithfulness that he points out to us. The first is we need faithfulness in the home. Faithfulness in the home, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled for fornicators and adulterers. God will judge. I want to start out by just, just noting the, the marriage bed he talks about. The marriage bed is to be held with honor. Thomas Watson, in his commentary on the Ten Commandments, uh, writes this concerning uh, marriage in particular. And I really appreciate how, how he, he deals with this in dealing with the Seventh Commandment. The special duties belonging to marriage are love and fidelity, which is another way of saying faithfulness. Love is the marriage of the affections. There is, as it were, but one heart in two bodies. Love lines the yoke and makes it easy. It perfumes the marriage relation. Isn't that a beautiful description of what marriage is? From someone who probably referred to as, as somewhat of a Puritan, I just want to say, sometimes they get it. He goes on to say, 
Yes, let's see if I can be sure that I find that. Oh, in marriage, there is mutual promise of living together faithfully according to God's holy ordinance. He begins to see that faithfulness is a key element of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we live in an age, I assume no one has actually noticed it, but, but our age is actually kind of sort of obsessed with sex. Have you, has anybody noticed that? I know, it's just shocking. It's like, oh, how can that be? And, and yet we look around and it's everywhere. And I even C.S. Lewis uh, wrote about it uh, in, in one of his books, and he said, what would you think of it? He said, our society is obsessed with sex. He said, what would you think about a society in which you could fill a, a large movie house with all kinds of people, and you bring out on stage a plate of food, and you slowly uncover the plate of food, and as soon as everybody can see it, you cover it up, and it leaves the stage, and everybody's done, and you could fill a, a, a movie house that way. You'd think that, that society is a little bit out of whack, wouldn't you? Well, our society is a little bit out of whack, and so we make everything about sex, and it's not always about sex. Sometimes there's something else, but when we make it all about sex, when we make adultery all about sex, you see what that does? Is that lets the lustful man off. Because he could say, well, we didn't have sex. And he say, so I'm not guilty of that. But when we understand it's about unfaithfulness, oh, the lustful glance was unfaithful. There's no denying that. And all of a sudden now we begin to see exactly what God is trying to get at, and it's faithfulness. That's why, you know, in the Old Testament, when God would talk about uh, Israel and their sin, how often did he speak of them as committing adultery? That that's what they had done, that they had been involved in harlotry. That's what the book of Hosea is all about is showing them that their sin is, is breaking that seventh commandment, that it was adultery, for they had left God, their husband. They had been unfaithful. Have faithfulness in the home. How do I do that? Well, you know, first off, give your heart to your spouse. Give your heart there. It's okay. Don't be afraid to have that affection for your spouse, and guard that heart. It belongs to no one else. It belongs only to my bride and will always be hers. And to do that, now some of you are saying, moment, pastor, not married. <laughs> to which I would say, well, the same thing is true. Give your heart to your spouse who you maybe don't know yet, but maybe you won't have one. And so you give your heart solely to Jesus. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul says was better for him to be single? Because he, he didn't have that divided affection. And so that's what he would say. And so I, I do that. And what am I going to do with that? I'm going to promote faithfulness in my life. You know, a part of me, I, I, I look at First John 4.20. And I think it applies here. Um, you can correct me if, if I'm wrong. First John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. And the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. Would that not apply to faithfulness? That if I'm not faithful to the wife that I can see, how can I be faithful to God who I can't? I believe that the principle applies. And so I find in my heart this need for faithfulness. I, I need to have a faithfulness, and it starts out in my home. But I also have to be faithful in my character. Look at verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you? He says, free from the love of money. 
Does that remind anybody else of 1 Timothy 6.10? Which tells us, For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Think about what people do for money. People murder for money, do they not? People steal for money. People lie for money. As a matter of fact, the whole second table could be said to be something people do for money. I can turn to the first table, and I know that people can become pastors for money or missionaries for money and therefore violate taking the, name, Lord, uh, the Lord's name in vain. Money can lead us to all sorts of evil, the love of it, right? When that's what we're longing for. And he says, keep your character free from that. Which means I need to live for heaven, right? Didn't Jesus say that in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21? For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do I really want the money? Is that really what drives my heart? Or is that I want holiness? I want the nearness of God. I want love to be a part of my life. That's what should drive us. And in so doing, that keeps my character faithful to God. And finally, I need to be faithful in your faith. Be faithful in your faith. Verse 6. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? The profundity of that statement the Lord is my helper. No, no, really. The Lord is my helper. He's a real help as I face life. I'm going to live my life believing that the Lord is actively involved in my life and is actively working for that which is good in my life, that He is the one who will indeed rescue me from what I face, from the hardships that I face, from the difficulties that I have to endure. It is the Lord who is my helper. I will turn to the Lord as I face things, for He is the one who is my Savior. To which I ask you, each one of us is aware that we are sinful, right? We know we've sinned. How am I going to deal with that? I'm going to try harder, Pastor. The Lord is my helper. It's not trying harder. It's turning to Jesus and saying, I cannot change the sins that I have done. I can't unsin them. I cannot get the mark off of me. The stain remains. I go back to Shakespeare's image of Lady Macbeth as she has the dream of the blood all over her hands and scrub though she might, she's incapable of getting it off of her hands. She cries out, 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 dark stains. I can't do it, but the Lord is my helper. Look to Him today. Ask Him to forgive you of your sins because of Jesus. And then, in every hardship that you face, and this life is filled with them, is it not? In every obstacle 
that you must overcome and this world is filled with them, is it not? In every betrayal that you experience and every personal failure for which you are guilty, the Lord is your helper. Turn to Him, being faithful in your faith. There are a lot of religious activities that we're involved in, right? We've got our worship services that we get together with. We've got uh, studies, whether it be a small group Bible study or Sunday school in which we're studying the Word and trying to understand it. We have prayer meetings here at the church, by the way, every Thursday night at 6.30. There's a prayer meeting just in room one. Uh, you're all invited. This portion of the sermon is brought to you by our Thursday prayer meeting. There's time of meditation that we spend just trying to memorize the Scripture or to think about the application of the Scripture. All of these are a part of our religious activities. They're a normal part of our day, a normal part of our week, a normal part of our life. And they're good. But why do we do them? We do it to draw closer to God, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, I want to draw nearer to Him. I want to know Him better. I want to experience Him regularly in my life. How should the nearness of God affect me? What difference should that make? How would I know if God is close to someone else? How would someone else know that He's close to me? I think that's where personal piety comes in. How would He know? How would they know? Well, probably because I still love, right? And probably because I remain faithful. That's how. And that's the impact that God's nearness has for us. That's the reason for the religious activities, to draw close to God, that he may indeed continue to work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we just need to breathe. Spirit of God, will you please help us to continue in our personal piety? Help us to love and make us faithful so that all the world may know that you are indeed awesome. Please do this for Jesus' sake. Amen.